It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and this is the KVMR Evening News. Up ahead on the California Report, a look at what these holiday storms mean for the state's fresh water reserves and drought status. Then in National Native News, New redistricting maps slice the Fort Hall Reservation in half. Efforts by tribes in Idaho to keep Fort Hall whole contest the legislation. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before science correspondent Al Stoller takes us on an expedition examining our orbit in preparation for tomorrow's solstice. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. There's rain and snow in the forecast again, less than a week after storms brought more than six feet of snow to the Sierra snowpack. Cold, low-pressure systems off the coast are expected to bring even more rain, snow, and colder weather to the state. Periods of moderate rain will likely hit the Bay Area Tuesday before moving to the Central Coast and Southern California. And another system could bring more precipitation on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. This week's storms could bring two to three inches of rain to most of the Bay Area and an inch or two across the southern part of the state. It's also expected to dump even more snow in the Sierra, with mountain snow levels likely starting around 3,000 feet. Speaking of which, that snowpack is a main source of fresh water for the state, and it's done a lot to decrease the severity of the drought. But as KCRW's Kaylee Wells reports, we still have a long way to go. Before the storm, the snowpack was hovering at about a quarter of what it normally would be by mid-December. Now it's back up to average. That's great news, but it's not nearly enough to lower the fire danger or end the drought. State officials are begging Californians to conserve water as the state's reservoirs are still parched, with most of them hovering at a third or less of their capacity. The drought is so severe, meteorologists say it could take three or four storms like this last one to moisten the soil, refill our water sources, and bring us enough snowpack in the Sierra to carry us through the summer. While the State Department of Water Resources won't know the condition of the water year until the wet season is over, forecasters predict the rainfall in Southern California this winter will be 60 percent of average. For the California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. More than three months after it started, a huge lightning-caused wildfire in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks has finally been fully contained. The National Park Service says the KNP Complex fire was declared 100 percent contained Thursday after significant rain and snow in the Sierra Nevada. The fire was ignited on September 9th and ultimately scorched 138 square miles. The KNP complex and another fire in the surrounding Sequoia National Forest tore through more than a third of California's giant sequoia groves and torched as many as 3,600 of the trees, according to park officials. Total containment means that the fire's perimeter is considered secure and no further growth is expected, which is different than a fire being declared out. State maps may soon show even more homes and buildings are at risk for wildfire. After years of delay, the California Department of Forestry and Fire Prevention says it's almost ready to release new fire hazard severity maps. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols explains why those maps matter. When the Tubbs fire burned his home in Santa Rosa to the ground, Brian Fees didn't dwell on his loss. He rebuilt. 
He didn't know about CAL FIRE's color-coded maps, orange for zones of high wildfire risk, red for very high. He was in the suburbs. He just assumed he'd be safe. Now, he wonders whether that's still true. Climate change is making risk a moving target. Places that used to be safe aren't safe anymore, and, and firefighters need to understand and reflect that, that change. The state's wildfires now routinely set records in size and destruction. Here's CAL FIRE Chief Tom Porter at an August news conference. Fires are burning in ways that nobody has seen before. Yes, I keep saying that, you keep hearing that, but it is absolutely true. What's also true is that it's been 14 years since CAL FIRE last designated zones where fire risk is high. Critics like Rick Halsey of the California Chaparral Institute say CAL FIRE's existing maps aren't just outdated, they're also flawed. He points out that in Santa Rosa, the Tubbs fire returned to neighborhoods the state hadn't deemed risky. This is what's so tragic. That area burned twice before, virtually in the same footprint in the previous 100 years. And so why that history wasn't incorporated into the fire severity maps is a mystery to me. CAL FIRE spokesman Daniel Berlant says this time around, the state's approach will be different. Old maps focused on geographic hazards, like forests and canyons where fire spreads. New maps will reflect new science about climate hazards, including extreme winds that push wildfire farther. The argument that we need to be mapping these areas and, and need to get on it sooner is real because we're seeing more of these wind-driven fires that take embers into areas that historically were not even designated uh, with a fire hazard level. Berlant says incorporating the climate change has been slower and more complicated than planned. We want to get the science right. CAL FIRE expects risky zones to get bigger, especially in areas where homes and wildlands meet. That could make it harder to build in forest and foothill areas, according to Stacy Heaton. She's an advocate for the rural county representatives of California. She says the new maps will hamper local governments already under pressure to solve the state's housing crisis. The state's telling them they have to build so many housing units per year. Even in the high fire hazard severity zones, they have to strike that balance between fire mitigation, but also building these low-income housing units. And in these zones, new development needs wider roads, more fire stations and hydrants. New homes must have fire-resistant walls, decks, and roofs. And all homeowners in risky areas have to clear defensible space. Heaton says recent arrivals, people who moved to rural California in the pandemic, may not think about that enough. Overall, more people are likely to live in new risk zones. In Sonoma County, Brian Fee says local officials should put the map in every mailbox. In my opinion, they should push it and not just passively provide it, not just uh, it's available on, you know, page 312 of the county's website, but they should push it. Fees isn't in a high risk zone yet, but like other homeowners who've lived through wildfire lately, he's more eager now to see what the updated maps reveal. For The California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. Support for The California Report comes from Real California Milk, reminding listeners to take three simple steps to recycle gallon milk jugs. Pour it, cap it, bin it. Learn more at RecycleTheJug.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. 
and the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity. And that's the California Report for Monday, December 20th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. We're back at it with redistricting. Last week, we were in New Mexico as state lawmakers discarded a tribal coalition proposal. In today's National Native News, we head to Idaho, where tribes challenge redistricting after new maps split the Fort Hall reservation in half. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland met with leaders from Great Plains tribes Friday in Rapid City. As South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Richard Tubles reports, tribal leaders discussed a number of issues facing their communities. Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Chairwoman Janet Alkire is her tribe's first female chairperson in 50 years. She says Holland is the kind of person Indian country needs. For us as Native people to have Secretary Deb Howland be there and be that voice and be the role model that we need. And me being a, a, a Lakota Mia, you know how proud I am to see another uh, historic moment to have a, a woman sitting at the cabinet level and her being a Native woman. Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Chairman Harold Frazier says he was satisfied with the dialogue. It was just a message to them is that, you know, we can't forget the day-to-day lives of, of our people on the reservations. You know, we got to, that, you know, how are we going to address the poverty? How are we going to uh, address the, you know, the poor health care and, and just the bad infrastructure and things like that? The president of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe also attended. Kevin Killer says the meeting is a sign that the administration wants better relations with tribes. I think the secretary kind of made that clear that it was important that she, she do that in her role. Um, and then she wants to kind of continue helping us in different capacities. Killer also says some tribal leaders asked for the return of the Black Hills, which is a sacred area in the traditions of many tribes. You know, that's something that, that we're always making sure that it gets reiterated, um, but also making sure that, that, you know, it gets up to the president, and I think the secretary is committed to carrying that message up there. The meeting was organized by the Great Plains Tribal Chairmen's Association. In Rapid City, I'm Richard Tubles. According to the Interior Department, Secretary Holland's meeting in South Dakota highlighted investments in Indian country, including $466 million for tribal projects and climate initiatives. Officials also met with Native youth taking part in the Lakota Nation Invitational. Idaho tribes are challenging redistricting plans in the state. As Eric Tigetoff reports, one map splits up the reservation. The Shoshone-Bannock tribes are adding to a slew of legal challenges to Idaho's legislative voting maps. The Idaho Commission for Reapportionment approved new district maps for legislative and congressional seats in November. But tribal members say the map for the state legislature illegally divides the Fort Hall Indian Reservation in southeast Idaho. William Bacon is the tribe's lead general counsel. He says they want to have as many tribal members in one district as possible. It's really straightforward. The Idaho Constitution and Idaho statutes protect communities of interest. The Fort Hall Reservation and the tribal people are a community of interest. We challenged the map that split the tribal community up into three different areas. Communities of interest are groups with shared concerns that might be affected by legislation. Upon approval, the redistricting commissioners said the maps are well-balanced with little variance in population between districts. 
Devon Boyer, chairman of the tribes, says ideally the entire Fort Hall reservation would be in one district. The only way that the Shombanic tribes is going to feel as though we're being properly represented is by making sure that we're collectively in the same area with proper representation, just like anyone else would be. The Idaho Supreme Court has combined two previous challenges to the maps and will hear oral arguments for those cases on January 14th. The Shoshone-Bannock tribes hope their challenge is added for oral arguments on that day. Another challenge has been filed to the congressional map as well, meaning all four cases could be heard at the same time. I'm Eric Tegadov. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Ubinet and the Union of Grass Valley both report notices of intent to recall all Nevada County supervisors were delivered to the County Elections Office today, initiating the removal process. Four of the five notices were served to supervisors during last Tuesday's Board of Supervisors meeting. The Elections Office responded with a press release stating, quote, the Nevada County Clerk Recorder Registrar of Voters determined that these notices of intention met legal requirements necessary to advance to the next steps of a recall. End quote. The next step includes the County Clerk Recorder Registrar of Voters determining whether the proposed petition is sufficient for circulation. Proponents will then have 120 days to collect signatures from 20% of registered voters in each district in order to qualify a recall for ballot. Based on cost estimates that the County Clerk Recorder Registrar of Voters did recently, a recall may cost around $260,000 for a standalone election. Today, a 6.2-magnitude earthquake 45 miles southwest of Eureka rattled items on shelves as far as the Sacramento Valley. Just after 12.10 p.m., the U.S. Geological Survey reported the quake on the Mendocino Fracture Zone. No tsunami warnings were issued. More than a dozen smaller earthquakes were reported in the same area later today. Damage so far appears to be minimal. Local officials issued no reports of major injuries. Residents as far away as Redding, Chico, and Siskiyou County reported feeling the quake. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. We now turn to KVMR News Director, Claudio Mendoza. This morning, Claudio stood out front of SPD Market on McKnight Way in Grass Valley and asked people what they had heard about the proposed RV Park Resort and what they thought of it. I seen that going on across the street in the big, we used to call it the cow pasture, I do. What are your thoughts about a park like that? Well, I, I was raised here and I've seen it go from a little tiny town to lots of people and that's really going to expand some things. Me personally, uh, 
I wouldn't, I don't want to see it happen, but uh, it's going to happen anyway. So uh, why would you not want it? I just think that uh, our town is too congested as it is. We don't have enough parking. Uh, try to go downtown right now and find a spot to park, you know, and uh, that would bring in just more people. I, you know, it's going to happen, but uh, that's just my thought. You know, we're already too congested. That was George from Alta Sierra. Susan from Grass Valley knew about the project, but doesn't support it. Did you know that there's a proposal for a RV park across from the fairgrounds? I heard that. And what are your thoughts about it? Um, I'm not too hip on it. And why not? Uh, I think there might be some other things that might be more important at this time. One thing. Homeless. Patricia from Penn Valley thinks that time and money would be better spent on increasing the area's housing inventory. Are you aware of the proposed RV park development across from the fairgrounds? I am not aware of that, no. It could bring up to $320,000 of revenue for the city. Is that something you'd be in favor of or against, or what are your thoughts? It, it's a, obviously a private place, so it's totally meant for like camping. It's not meant for permanent homes, which is what we need more of. The Grass Valley Planning Commission will convene tomorrow at 6 p.m. to discuss the proposed RV Park Resort and annexation project. And, if approved, the project will then go to the Grass Valley City Council for final consideration. The public can submit comments via voicemail at 530-274-4390 or by emailing public at cityofgrassvalley.com. Comments received before 5 p.m. tomorrow will be reviewed and distributed before the meeting. Now let's take a look at our regional weather. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly cloudy then gradually becoming mostly clear with a low around 34. Tomorrow, rain mainly after 4 p.m. with a high near 52. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 19. Tomorrow, increasing clouds with a high near 40. Snow is likely come evening, with 1 to 3 inches possible. The National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for the Truckee Tahoe region. A series of Pacific winter storms will result in major travel disruptions beginning tomorrow and lasting through the holiday weekend. Plan on periods of significant snowfall beginning late Tuesday. Thursday and the weekend are forecasted as having the most intense snowfall rates with the worst travel conditions. Snow levels will fluctuate between 5,000 to 6,000 feet Wednesday through Thursday, with snow levels forecast to drop to all valley floors by Friday morning. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, patchy fog between 10 and 11 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 36. Tomorrow, a 50% chance of rain before 11 a.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 49. Rain expected tomorrow evening. As Earth circles the sun, we come to parts of our orbit that are special. Science correspondent Al Stoller explains. Tomorrow is winter solstice, shortest day, longest night of the year. For months now, the sun has been spending more and more of its time shining south of the equator. The sun's been hiding from us, hanging out down south, 
staying low in the sky. But now, come the solstice, the sun begins its return. Days slowly grow longer. The sun, day by day, climbs higher. A dipper is a large spoon for dipping water out of a barrel or a bucket. Like any other spoon, a dipper has a bowl and a handle. The starry constellation, the dipper, has a bowl and a handle. If you connect the last two bowl stars, they guide you to the North Star. A lot of folks are surprised when they first see the North Star that there's nothing special about it. It is not especially bright. The only thing special about the North Star is that it happens to sit 24-7 over the North Pole. Look toward the North Star and you're facing north. Connect the stars that make up the handle of the dipper. Those stars guide us to a star that is special. Connect the stars in an arc and follow that arc to Arcturus. Arcturus is a star that is special for its color, a very pleasing topaz. And also, Arcturus is special for the way it moves through the galaxy. Our galaxy is shaped like a kid's pinwheel. All the stars we see, including our sun, move round and round in that flat pinwheel, but not Arcturus. If you think of our pinwheel as a target, Arcturus is an arrow flying through that target. Studying the atoms Arcturus is made of and thinking about how it moves, astronomers have developed a strong suspicion that Arcturus is of a different generation of stars than our sun. Stars do not live forever. Stars are born, they burn for millions or billions of years, and then they die. While they're burning, stars make new atoms. Stars are atom factories. And when they die, Stars spew their atoms out into the galaxy to make new generations of stars. Arcturus has only small amounts of some atoms, which makes astronomers suspect that when Arcturus was born, there were not a lot of these atoms available for making stars. Arcturus is of an earlier generation than the Sun, an earlier generation than all the other stars we see at night, which begs the question, what about even earlier generations of stars? This Friday, the James Webb Space Telescope will, at last, launch into space. One of the projects the telescope will take on is to look across the universe, to look far back in time for galaxies that are home to the earliest generations of stars. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to me talk about things that turn me on. I hope your holidays are warm and you can enjoy the incoming weather. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Monday, December 20th. If you ever miss a part of an interview or want to listen to something a second time that caught your interest, you can always listen to the full, extended versions of our stories and interviews on our website at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR gets support from Tripp's Auto Body Shop, locally owned and operated by the Tripp family, offering collision, dent, automotive frame repair, and detailing for over 65 years. Open weekdays, 8 to 5, Freeman Lane, Grass Valley. T-R-I-P-P-S, autobody.com. And Gaia Soap Supply, a local bulk natural soap and cleaning product shop 
on Argyll Way, Nevada City, offering creative handcrafted stocking stuffers and holiday gifts, supplying individuals and commercial customers with eco-friendly products. GaiaSoapSupply.com. Stick around. Coming up at 6.30, we have the Women's International News Gathering Service, WINGS. Last week brought news of the passing of American author, professor, feminist, and social activist, Bell Hooks. On this episode of WINGS, we hear excerpts from her passionate keynote address to the Texas Council on Family Violence in 1993. That same year, she published Sisters of the Yam, Black Women and Self-Recovery. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Stay warm out there. Thank you.